Thanks for uh, joining us today as we're going through Matthew's gospel. Once again, we took a bit of a pause. Kyle did an amazing job preaching through the story of Jesus walking on water. I want to come back to that story and uh, look at it again in light of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and healing uh, the the sick with the fringes of his garment. So we're going to come back and look at it again. Praise God that his word is rich, that we can come back to uh, texts like that and continue to derive water from the word like that and drink deeply of it. And so um, again, I, I can't be thankful enough for uh, the men who stepped in. Um, it's been so long since I preached, I almost forgot how to do it. So uh, we'll see if it comes back. When it comes to a long, slow reading of Matthew, it helps to stay grounded in the context of Matthew's gospel. One of the main questions that the crowds repeatedly ask in the gospel when they see Jesus work is, who is this man? And you just see it over and over again. It's interesting. If you see that phrase, you can just circle it over and over again, and you find it being repeatedly asked. People simply could not wrap their heads around what kind of man could teach with such authority, calm a storm, forgive sins, heal a paralytic, eat with sinners and tax collectors and cast out demons. The Pharisees saw his work and believed him to be the devil, or at least working under the influence of the prince of devils, Beelzebul. Herod the Tetrarch heard of Jesus's work and thought he was some form, some zombie prophet, John the Baptist, who had come out of the grave to haunt him for killing him. Likewise, we come to Matthew's gospel, and as we read about Jesus's work, we're left asking the same question. Who is this Jesus? In the next pass, in this passage that we're focusing on, Matthew 14, uh, verses 13, all the, all the way down to verse 36, Matthew will show us that this somewhat lackluster Nazarene, whom so many people have rejected, whom so many people walk away from, is truly the Son of God, God in flesh, walking and working among men. Now, you might be someone who's sitting here today and saying, I already believe that. Why does it matter to me? Why would I need to know who Jesus is when I already believe that Jesus is my Savior? Well, I think we, like all the first century readers of Matthew's gospel, need help in understanding who Jesus really is. I think Matthew was writing to non-believers and believers alike. I believe he was writing to people who maybe already believed in Jesus, and yet they needed help in understanding the full ramification of who Jesus is. Sometimes, like those who witnessed Jesus's ministry, who, who witnessed Jesus's ministry in real time back in those days, we relegate Jesus down to being a mere rabbi, a mere prophet, or even just another impressive miracle worker. When we come to things like pandemics and political turmoil and global unrest and personal hardships, it's easy for us as Christians to forget that Jesus is no mere religious figurehead. He's not just our mascot right? He's not just the man that we say his name somewhat significantly, somewhat reverentially, but then it means nothing else to us. No, when we come to Jesus and listen to this powerfully, because you have listened to so many messages this week on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Fox News, on CNN, over and over, you have had messages hammered into you. Now listen to this profound message. Jesus is no mere man. He is mighty God. I mean, it sounds so simple and we make it so mundane, don't we? It's just, we kind of live in that truth. And yet when we live in it, it just becomes second nature. And when things become familiar, we tend to treat them with contempt. Kind of the same way you, you would never say the things you say to your wife to other people, right? But you're so familiar with your wife that you feel so comfortable just to kind of be haphazard with her. Well, we do the same thing to Jesus. We get so familiar with him, or we say his name so much, or we come to church our whole lives, and yet, over time, we tend to let the name and identity of Jesus lose its true potency, 
Jesus is mighty God in flesh who makes banquets in the desert, walks on the waves, and brings healing in his wings. Great, Pastor. Now let's talk about what's happening in D.C. No, that's less important. This is more important. That is infinitely unimportant compared to this. Notice in Matthew's gospel, you never once hear what's happening in Rome. Matthew never tells you what Caesar's doing. Other than Caesar wanted to count. That's the only time you hear Caesar. And in that, you got to be left wondering why Caesar's the most important man in the world at the time. And yet we're stuck studying about this man named Jesus. And Matthew's point is exactly Jesus is the king who deserves your attention. Jesus is the king who deserves your, your affection, your adoration, your wholehearted devotion. Things might be happening in Rome, but while things are happening in Rome, God is visiting his people in the wilderness on the stormy Galilee and in their sickness. And that's infinitely more important for the sake of our redemption. In Jesus, God has taken on flesh and he has walked among men. Therefore, we like the disciples, these simple fishermen are called to a holy reverential awe and worship of Jesus Christ as we reflect and meditate on his divine work. So here's the first question. Who spreads a table in the wilderness? Who makes banquets in the desert? Word had reached Jesus that Herod the Tetrarch had beheaded John the Baptist, and now Herod was fearfully asking, well, who's this Jesus? And comes up with some hobnob theory of Jesus being like a zombie guy uh, who's come out. I can only imagine what's going on in Herod's mind in, in offering that maybe Jesus is some resurrected John the Baptist. It's easier for him to believe that than it is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so that's just the extent of his, I, I think, his self-indulgence here. He's just so centered on himself. Maybe he thinks he himself is the Messiah. Who knows? But he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Well, anyway, Jesus hears that... Uh, that Herod's asking about John the Baptist, and he withdraws from there, and he goes to a desolate place by himself. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus's reason for withdrawing has nothing to do with him being afraid of Herod. It's just simply not time for him to meet Herod yet. He will meet Herod. There will be a time when he will sit in front of Herod, and Herod will mock him and invite him to do a, uh, to do some miracles, to perform some miracles, maybe save himself. But now's not that time. For now, Jesus has work to do. One of the other reasons that Jesus was leaving was for solitude. After being with the crowds, facing the pharisaical accusations, and losing his cousin, it's understandable that Jesus wanted to be alone. He just wanted some quiet time. However, the crowds heard that he was on the move, and they followed. And when he arrived on shore, they were waiting for him. And so he gets out of the boat... And he sees all these crowds. I just, I just want you to imagine this. You go off on vacation. You need a little solitude. You need a little rest. You get off the cruise ship and boom, there's your entire company waiting for you. Hey, we thought we would catch up with you. Okay. For me, I'm thinking, I'm going to a less crowded port. I'm getting back on the cruise ship. This is my vacation. Leave me alone, people. In fact, during my COVID staycation, um, I turned off everything. I had a great time just sitting in my little office alone. I know that's not true for everybody, but for me, I had mild symptoms as I was away reading. People would try to call me. I'd be like, not now I've got COVID, you know, <laughs> just put it away. Um, but Jesus steps up on shore, seeking solitude, seeking rest. And he sees these people. And yet his response to seeing these people demonstrates him to be the shepherd who was foretold long ago. He's not a shepherd like me who says, not right now, I have COVID, and shuts off the phone. He's a better shepherd who sees the sheep and immediately has compassion, even when they're infringing upon his rest time, even when they're infringing upon his little vacation. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. The word for compassion 
we, it doesn't really do us justice when we say compassion. When we say compassion, we tend to think of pity, right? We feel sorry for someone. We, we see someone on the side of the road and we are moved to pity or to compassion. But compassion in the Greek, it's got this really complex uh, pronunciation for this Greek word. And it just, it just, it carries its splagnizomai. Okay. That is, that is the word. And you just hear it in there. It's this inward moving, stirring, this turmoil inside for someone. Can you imagine having such a deep love for someone that the only word that can, can adequately describe it is splaglizomai, right? It's just, you're being stirred up. Your, your heart's being moved. You're shaken to love. He sees these crowds and he doesn't see just this blob of people. He doesn't just see a bunch of rioters. He doesn't just see a bunch of angry mob. He doesn't just see a bunch of people who are making demands of him. No, he is moved to compassion, moved to love, and wants to do something about it. He is overwhelmed with love for these people. And so he's moved. Sinners, though they were. Filthy people, though they were. They've traveled a long distance. They have sick. They have leprous people among them. These are unclean. These are the kinds of, the the Pharisees back in the day would not walk in big crowds just in case somebody unclean touched them. Jesus doesn't avoid the crowds. He doesn't crinkle his nose up at the uncleanness that might be among them. That his heart is moved to love. It says that the hour grew late and the place was desolate, meaning that it was a wilderness. It was a desert. There's, there's no uh, Whataburgers around here. There's, there's no, you know, uh, country kitchens or, or anything like that. There's nowhere that you can go to and get food. It's in the middle of a desert place. And if you've never been in the wilderness in Israel, it is exactly what it sounds like, a wilderness. It's de- de- deserted. It's dry. It's hot. There's not a lot of food growing. Um, Animals aren't out and about running around, and so there's not a lot to do in case of food. And you know how dangerous it is to be out in the desert with no food, right? And so they come all the way out here just to meet Jesus. They come to the Sea of Galilee. Um, Jesus is there to meet them. It's late. It's time to go home. Some of them probably aren't going to make it home. That's the kind of danger that they lived in in that day. Some of them are already hungry and weak, and their stomachs are kind of imploding in on itself. And Jesus knows that they don't have the strength to, to make the walk back to their various cities. So some of them very well could have died. Jesus answers his disciples who are saying, go send them home, just send them away home. He says, they have no need to go away. You give them something to eat. We find out later that's a crowd of 5,000 men. That's not counting women and children. And so if, if the people were having babies like they tended to do back in those days, I mean, we're talking a very large crowd. Very well could have been upwards of 10,000 people. Who knows? And to see this massive crowd out in the middle, middle of the wilderness and Jesus looking at his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. Now, either Jesus is mean and is making an unfair challenge, or he's mean and he's taunting his disciples, or he's intentionally teaching them something about himself. I mean, just imagine, what would be your thoughts if Jesus looked at you and said, I want you to feed here in Ovilla, Texas, where we do have Whataburgers. You feed a crowd of 10,000 people. Most likely you would say, even here with all the resources we have, I can't. And that's just the point. Jesus' statement reveals the obvious. Feeding the crowd is impossible for men. It is absolutely impossible with the resources available. No man, indeed not even a group of men, of 12 men at that, could feed such a large crowd. Disciples pointed out when they say, we have here only five loaves and two fish. For the crowd's so large, what can some of these loaves and this fish do? This won't even feed a family in ancient Israel, let alone feed a crowd of more than 10,000 or so people. And yet Jesus remains undeterred. What he is about to do will give them a glimpse of his real identity. 
He commands them to bring the bread and the fish. And then verse 19 says this, He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Now Jesus is about to provide a feast in the wilderness, and we know this because of the word that he uses. In Greek, there are several words for just sit, okay? But this particular word for sit means to come to the table, to recline at the table. So in other words, when Jesus commands the, the crowds to say, he's basically saying, get ready to eat. Now, I, I don't know if I, I'm you, but I, I, I like to imagine maybe uh, the whispers that might have been going on. We're in the middle of the wilderness, and Jesus just called us to the table. Jesus just told us to put on our, our bibs. That seems bizarre. That's amazingly profound. How is he going to do this in the middle of the desert? And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Now, once the bread and fish were passed around, it says something very important. And, and you know, as I've preached throughout the years, that, that phrases mean something, especially in the way that scripture uses scripture. Importantly, it says they all ate and were satisfied. And not only were they satisfied, we'll come back to that phrase here in a minute. The disciples still took up 12 baskets full of leftovers. So it wasn't just enough. It wasn't just a meager provision. It was more than enough. It was abundant provision. It was absolute abundance in the wilderness. Jesus had turned this desert into a dining table. He had turned this potential threat of of starving to death into a Thanksgiving feast. They all ate until they were full. Now in all the Bible, you do your own research on this. In all the Bible, there is only one being who can create such a feast out in the wilderness like this. Only one person. Who else do you know in scripture took his people out into the desert and fed them meat and bread? If you opened up to Psalm 78, the psalmist, looks at that wilderness story, and he says, even the people themselves, they're out there, this, this crowd of people, they're out in the wilderness, and even they are asking, they're openly doubting, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? To the Exodus generation, the thought of, G, of God providing bread and meat in the desert was laughable. Even God, who, who, could, who could do this? And yet, as they soon discovered, it was a key proof of God's omnipotent sovereignty that he alone could feed them. And then you find the important phrase in Psalm 78, 29, that they all ate and were well satisfied. It almost seems like Matthew wants us to read Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 in light of Psalm 78. Here these people are again. Who can spread a table in the wilderness? Who can make a feast in the desert? Who can feed us all so that we eat and are satisfied? Who is this man? Who is this who, like God, has compassion toward people, spreads a table in the wilderness, invites them to recline, gives them meat and bread? The only possible answer, looking at a scriptural, from a scriptural point of view, is God himself. He is Yahweh in flesh, who has the power to make banquets in the desert and feed those too weak to feed themselves. He is the long-awaited divine and Davidic shepherd of Ezekiel 34, who has compassion on the sheep and feeds them. Jesus, as God himself, spreads tables in his people's wilderness. My friends, in this passage, Matthew invites you to consider your own need to be fed by the divine shepherd. For many, especially now, life feels like an empty wilderness, doesn't it? Feels a bit like an isolated desert. Some of you are feeling the, the, the hunger pains inside. You feel your spiritual stomach beginning to implode and the thought of being full, of being satisfied. You know, that, that, that uh, 2019 Thanksgiving, pull back from the table, unbuckle the pants, and just pat the belly type of fool. 
Those days seem long gone, don't they? That kind of satisfaction doesn't seem like it's coming back again. Some of us, we are hungry. My friends, there's something refreshing just to admit I'm hungry. Amen, brother. There's something refreshing just to acknowledge the hunger pains and not to try to pretend. I mean, all the while we're acting like we're full, we're saying we're full, we're saying we don't need any more, and then our stomach grumbles audibly. You've had that happen before, right? Where you're sitting in the middle of a meeting, getting close to lunchtime, and everybody can hear your stomach rumble. My friends, in the middle of 2020, everybody can hear your stomach grumble. In the middle of 2020, my stomach grumbles. If this season has taught us anything, it should be teaching us how empty our careers, our politics, and even simple things like vacationing. They simply do not fill us up, do they? I mean, where do you turn when your job suffers a famine and layoffs lurk on the horizon? Where do you turn when you realize how many more years you have till retirement, how hard you're going to have to work, and you're in this joyless job, and you have to keep working for this angry boss who's unfair, and it just seems like no end in sight? Where do you turn when your bank accounts are as empty as your stomach, and you're wondering where you're going to find basic provision at the end of the day? How are you going to make mortgage? How are you going to make ends meet? Are your kids going to have a decent enough life? Where do you turn when your bucket list shortens? All these things you hope to do in your 60s and 70s, you can't do because you can't go anywhere. Hawaii's been taken off the list because you might catch COVID and die if you go down. You wanted to take a trip to the Grand Canyon, but you couldn't. We had an Israel trip planned this year that got canceled. And suddenly our bucket list isn't quite so satisfying, is it? How do you find satisfaction when you're uncertain whether even the government can feed you in a famine? My friends, all of this that we've dealt with is sincerely terrifying. We're living in days, let's just admit it, that none of us have lived to see. This is massively frightening for a lot of us. It's been a desert of a year. And some of you may be wondering if you have the strength to make it through to the next year. Suicide rates are up. Depression rates are up. Household abuse is up. That may be you. My friend, I just want to call you back to the simple faith. In such wildernesses of life, we are reminded of our need to be filled only by the Savior. There's only one being who can make banquets in the desert. And it's not you. It's not your job. It's not your medicine. It's not your friends. It's not society. It's not your favorite restaurant. It's not your favorite vacation spot. The only one who can fill you up to where you do not need to eat to where there's no more that could be added unless it overflowed and burst forth is God. God feeds his people in wildernesses. Praise God. And Matthew reminds us of what we have in Jesus. Now that story alone would be amazing, right? If, it, if that was all we had, that would be amazing. Just the knowledge that Jesus is the one who lays out a table in the desert. That's pretty amazing. That's enough to give us joy, right? That's enough to give us hope. There's so many of us that are joyless right now, and that story alone is enough to just top you off for the week. And yet, that's not all that Matthew gives us in Matthew 14. It says, after the crowds were finished eating, and I'm going to intentionally miss some of the points that Kyle made, um, so if you feel like I'm skipping over some things, I am, because I'm not going to duplicate what Kyle did in his awesome sermon, I'm going to highlight some other things. The crowds were 
finished eating. They were full. Some of them had the big, you know, full tummy gut, you know, and, and, and were trying to waddle away to their homes. Jesus tells his disciples to get into the boat to start going on to the other sea. And at that point, I'm kind of going, well, how are you going to get to the other side, Jesus? <laughs> You're sending them ahead. I don't know if any of the disciples were really paying attention or if they're too full to care. Maybe they were food drunk and just <laughs> whatever you say, Jesus, you know, and they waddle, roll into the boat and start to, you know, the boat's probably sinking down low to the surface of the water with these fat full guys, you know, um, and uh, they're, they're drifting off and Jesus sends away these crowds and he goes up a mountain to pray. To pray. Now at this point, I just kind of want to insert myself into the story and say, Jesus, what about your disciples? Did you forget something? You sent them ahead. You're supposed to be meeting them. You don't have time to pray. You need to get to moving. However, you got a long trek around the lake here. I mean, if, if you know the geography of it, I mean, he's from a human standpoint, this man is going to have to walk around the lake to get to the other side where his disciples will meet him. He said, go on ahead of me, right? And blindly, he's going to meet them somewhere. Matthew continues to further the suspense, the suspense, and he says that the boat was a long ways off, literally many stadiums. That's how they did distance back then. It was a long, stadium is a long way off. So think of uh, the Arlington Stadium, many stadiums, many Arlington sta stadiums away from the land, okay? And it was stuck in a windstorm. The Sea of Galilee, if you've ever been on it, is infamous for its unpredictable and violent storms that can come out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's amazing how this little sea can cause so much havoc and turmoil for a boat out there. And it just comes out of nowhere. So from all outward appearances, there's nothing that Jesus can do for his disciples. They're way out there. How is he going to get out there? No boat can row him out there. They can't get back. They're stuck in the windstorm. How is he going to be able to help them? And once again, everything in the story is set to show us the impossibility of what's about to happen. Just like in the first story, Matthew wanted us to understand that there were thousands of people in the wilderness. Now he wants us to understand that the disciples are stuck in a windstorm, many stadiums, in the middle of the night. In the Old Testament, I think this is amazing. In the Old Testament, God proved his power to his people in wildernesses, on stormy seas, and in hardships. And in the New Testament, Jesus does the exact same to show us who he is. Verse 25 says this, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The disciples were naturally at a, at a loss. Who would, let's, just, let's just put you back in their time. Now, we're reading retrospectively, right? And we're like, in hindsight, it's 2020. We know that's Jesus but you put yourself in the boat. Who would have naturally said, oh, that's Jesus. I mean, this is a guy walking on the waves and not just this calm stormy sea. I mean, this is a torrential windstorm. The waves are rocking the boat. They can't go anywhere. And there's some dude out there walking. I would have not only thought it was a ghost, I would have probably peed my tunic. I mean, this is terrifying. Who was it? Well, they initially thought it was a ghost. My friends, this is just Matthew's honest transparency about the disciples. They're sincerely human. You would think after all that they had seen, I mean, they've already seen Jesus calm the storm in Matthew's gospel. So maybe somebody would have thought, could it, maybe, I'm just going to throw this out there. Could it be Jesus? Nobody does that because they're simply human. They're fear, fearful humans. Yes, they follow Jesus. Yes, they believe his teaching. Yes, they've seen him do incredible things. And yet, when they see him walking on water, they think he's a ghost. My friends, before you too quickly judge their slowness, those dim-witted disciples should have known it was Jesus, don't forget how often you misinterpret God's actions for something else. Don't forget how often you miss Jesus treading on the waves of your own storms. 
Storms at your job? Jesus is walking on the waves? Must be unfortunate. Must be, must be a bad luck. When we see these storms in our own life, we don't too quickly acknowledge that it could be Jesus. What if it's Jesus that's walking on the waves of your layoff? What if it's Jesus walking on the waves of COVID? What if it's Jesus walking on the waves of your depression? Not just some ghost who has nothing to do with it, but actual sovereign Savior who is using the storm to show you who he is. I just want to point to how profound it is. They knew nothing about who this man was. They knew nothing about who it was that was walking on this storm until Jesus said these words, take heart, I am. That's what the Greek means, ego eimi. We translated it as I, but to a Greek reader who would have also had the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, ego eimi is theologically powerful because it means I am, and we know who else called himself the I am, right? So Jesus is in the middle of the stormy sea. The disciples are fearful. The wind's blocking them. They think it's a ghost until they hear these sovereign words from God, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. He is no ghost. He is God. Peter, who often spoke for the disciples, probably shouldn't most of the time, but this time did fine. He wanted more proof. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. I mean, this is a test that Peter's made. If it really is you, then call me to come into the water. And Jesus says, come. Now, Peter's water walk illustrates what we have already seen about the disciples' faith. He gets out of the boat. He begins to walk to Jesus. And yet, at the sight of the waves and the wind, he begins to sink. My friends, I would have probably not gotten out of the boat in the first place, right? I've been too freaked out that someone's walking on the waves, right? I've been changing my tunic that I'd already peed in. I probably would have sunk at the first step. Peter at least goes a little bit. And when his faith was not enough to keep him above water, he at least had the faith to cry out to Jesus to save him. Lord, save me. Doesn't try to swim. <laughs> he doesn't tell someone to throw him a, a, a buoy. He just says, save me. My friends, we are messy disciples. We are messy people. We call the Son of God a ghost, when in reality it's the sovereign Son of God walking on our waves. But we are also the disciples who, on Monday, walk on water, and on Tuesday, splash flat down into the sea. And who, on Wednesday, get smart and start to pray, Lord, save me. Who, Thursday, feel numb from the cold waves. And on Friday, finally feel the grip of God on our hearts. My friends, your, your life with Jesus your walk with the Lord is not dependent on the strength or weakness of your faith. I want to make that very clear. We live in a very name it, claim it type culture in, in, in Christian churches where you have to have the faith to make it. My friends, your faith will not help you make it. It is the one in whom you have faith that helps you make it. It is not the strength or the weakness of your faith that keeps you above the water. It is the hand of the one in whom you trust. Do you realize that? It wasn't Peter's faith. It was Jesus that kept him from drowning. Now, we must have faith in Jesus. We should seek strong faith. We should try, our, uh, try and pray and hope for a stronger faith. We definitely have more enjoyment of Jesus. We walk on water longer when we have stronger faith. But my friends, if you don't feel like you can keep yourself through 2020, just know that Jesus is keeping you. 
you might have walked just fine January to June. July, you began to see the winds and the waves. And now here you are in November and December, and you're beginning to sink. How will you make it to 2021? The Lord's hand sustains his people, not you. Jesus was more than willing. When our faith is too weak to hold us above the water, it is his hand that keeps us from sinking into the watery grave of despair. And my prayer for you is that you will stop looking at the strength of your faith, questioning the weakness of your faith, questioning if you have enough to keep going, and start basking in the strength of your Savior. Don't Focus on the rope. Focus on the one holding the rope. <laughs> okay. When Peter and Jesus got back into the boat, the wind ceased, just stopped. The lesson was over. The test was over. They, they, they had seen what they needed to see. I just want to imagine the stillness and the calm. I've, 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 I've sat in a boat in the middle of a, a still Galilean sea, and, and it's calm, the wind just kind of blowing. Now, just imagine having seen what you had seen, and Jesus is standing in that boat. And it's calm, nice little breeze coming down, and you're looking at the one who is just walking on the waves. What kind of heartbeat do you have at that moment? What kind of stuttering speech do you begin to try to figure out what just happened? Who is this man? Who walks on the waves? Who is this that is mightier than the sea? Who can, who can get into the boat and the waves stop? The, the wind ceases and it's just all calm. Again, we turn to the Old Testament for the answer. In the Old Testament, there's only one being who is mightier than the stormy waters. Psalm 77, 19, speaking of God, says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Similarly, similarly Habakkuk 3.15 says that God is the one who tramples on the sea. And then we can add to this Psalm 93.4, which says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The whole account is meant to display that Jesus is the creator. The disciples apparently got that much because what they do next is blasphemous in a monotheistic Jewish culture if he's not God. They worshiped him. They worshiped him. My friends, we so often, like the disciples, have those same blips of faith. And, and it wasn't the last time they had a blip of faith. They thought Jesus was a ghost when they saw him on the sea. They thought he was a ghost again after the resurrection. When you, when you go to Luke 24, 37, they see Jesus and they're like, ah, it's a ghost. I would too. Totally. I, you know, if I buried Grammy last year and I see her this year, I'm going to think it's a ghost. Okay. All my Ghostbuster movies are probably popping out and I'm going to figure out there's a real company for that. Okay. This is not the last time they have a blip of faith. My friends, we are just like them. And yet we can draw our hearts near to Jesus. We can fall down and worship. We can worship the Son of God who treads on the sea, who walks on the waves, who is mightier than the thunder of many oceans. Now, we get to the last of, I, I think what's called, these, the, I call it the power trilogy of Jesus. So we get to the third part of this trilogy uh, where Jesus is in Gennesaret. So having met in the sea, which is bizarre enough, he's met them in the middle of the Lake of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples cross the Galilee and they come to a place called Gennesaret, which is just south of Capernaum. Once again, the local people recognize him. They bring him their sick. And then verse 36 says, they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Why would they want to touch the fringe of his garment? What made them think, if I only touch the fringe of his garment, I'll be made? Why not, why not his shoulder? Why not, you know, I don't know, his sandal strap? 
Why, why did they think that if they could touch his, the fringes of his garment? So you know that in Jewish culture, they wore these robes. If you've ever seen a, a Jesus movie, maybe you've watched The Chosen or whatever, Jesus wears this little over thing, whatever you call it, shawl, maybe, I don't know. Ladies, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but there's this robe, right, that goes over him. And the corner of that's called a kanaf in Hebrew. And it can also be translated as wings. And so in old Hebrew culture, if you wanted to propose, young guys, listen to this. Um, you wanted to propose to a young lady, you just walked up slightly to her and you put your robe over her and you spread your wing over her. That was like a proposal, right? And so this piece of the garment was always a symbol of protection and care and provision and love. And so uh, you, you, would, you would see children when they're scared, they'd run to daddy and daddy would put his little robe over them, Right? Like, like little chicks running to the mama hen for protection under the wings? Well, that image of wings is borrowed again in Malachi chapter 4, where Malachi, who looks into the future and sees this coming restoration, he says this in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. And so Malachi sees this sun, S-U-N, like the actual sun, Wearing a garment, and in the corner of this garment, in its wings, and its kanaf, is healing. And so as the sun goes across the, the country of Israel here in this restoration, it heals the land. Well, that's a prophecy that Malachi intends for his people to take hope in. There will be a day that a sun of righteousness will dawn, and in the wings of its garment, it will bring healing and restoration. Now, I don't know if... Matthew is intentionally alluding to Malachi 4.2, but it's certainly possible. How else did these people know that it would be in Jesus' wings, in his kanaf, that they would find healing? Why do we see this crowd of hundreds of people just scooping down, just to touch, just to touch the fringes and to walk away healed? How did they have the faith and have the knowledge that if they did that, that they would be restored? I think they have gotten the message, at least in part, not perfectly, that he is the long-awaited redeemer who has come to heal the broken. He is the one with healing in his wings. Now, all of this should leave us asking, how is it that Jesus could heal? If you know Matthew's gospel already, you know back in Matthew 8, when Jesus was healing all the crowds and healing Peter's mother-in-law, that Matthew interpreted that as a sign that Isaiah 53 was being fulfilled. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So for Matthew, for every healing... Jesus is taking on the consequences of the fall. He's becoming the substitute, the servant who will bear it all, the consequences, effects, and everything of the fall, and will die for it. So for Matthew, Jesus' healing ministry is a visible illustration of his sacrificial work. The punishment of sin, the sickness, the death, the hurt, the pain, the wounds, the addictions, all of it, Jesus takes on to himself. And so this healing points us forward to when Jesus would spread his arms on the cross and the punishment for every prideful heart, every gossip session, every sexually immoral thought, every hurtful word, every arrogant action, every unloving act would be poured out on him, punished in him. God would save us. And it's only as Jesus rises again that we find healing in Jesus' kanaf and his wings. Points forward to the gospel in this. That which is broken will be mended. That which is ruined will be restored. And all will be made right once more when the sun of righteousness shines on those who fear the Lord. My friends, have you ever wanted Jesus? Have you ever more wanted Jesus? Just to walk over the grave of your loved one and let the edge of his cloak just touch you. With your cancer, with your sickness, with your depression, your chronic illness, just for Jesus to spread his cloak to bring restoration. That is the real hope that we have. That there will be a day that as Jesus walks and lives and talks and speaks to us in this new heaven and new earth, that graves will open 
Sickness will be gone. Death will be destroyed. Things like mental illness and discouragement, pain, heart disease, all these things will be gone because Jesus has healing in his wounds. Just stir us up to love. My friends, I don't know what's going to happen in the next four years. I don't even know who our next president is for the next four years. I know this. There is healing in no one else but Jesus. Whoever sits in the White House will not bring healing to America. Whoever sits in the White House will not bring healing to you, will not heal the planet, will not heal your family. Do you acknowledge that truth in real time, or is that just a nice little spiritual truth, and then we have all these physical truths that we live in? We must be people who have a deep faith in the one who has healings in his wounds. Now, just to end, just to conclude. Reading these accounts in quick succession, we're left asking, what does Matthew intend for us to do with these stories? Well, we've already said he intends for us to ask the question, who is this man? And he intends to answer that question. This is Yahweh incarnate. God himself who has taken on flesh to save his people from their sins and to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. My friends, he's not just a name. He's not just a religious figure. He's not just someone that you say you believe in because your political party is friendly to him. No, this is God in flesh who reigns on high at the right hand of God and will reign forevermore. This is Jesus Christ. And from the beginning of his gospel, Matthew has been calling us as readers to have faith in him. If we allow Matthew's message to take root in our lives, then this faith will have a deep impact on ourselves, on our family, and on our community. My friends, I know I'm going a little over time. I haven't preached in two weeks. And I know that you are dealing with some serious stuff. Can we just take a moment, forget about the time. Most of us are watching at home in our PJs anyway. And can we just ask a few questions about ourselves? I just want you to close your eyes for a time of evaluation. I'm not going to do anything hokey. I just want, I want you to ask these questions of yourself. I'm asking you to close your eyes so you don't get sidetracked. Matthew writes for the hungry. Do you feel like you've been in the wilderness this year? Are you withering because of the internal emptiness that you've been dealing with? Do you suffer from the soul-felt hunger pains? Maybe you're hungry and empty in your family. Maybe in your marriage, you feel like your marriage has come up dry. Maybe your job brings you no satisfaction. Whatever it is, do you feel hungry? Maybe you're worried about a loved one dying, and that has driven you to hunger. Maybe you've buried family, and that has driven you to hunger. Are you hungry? My friends, Jesus is the one who prepares banquets in the desert. Have you gone to him? Or have you stayed in the desert of fear? Have you thrown yourself on the one who can... Make feast out of famine. He can give you a spiritually full stomach in the middle of this spiritual famine that we have. Are you bashed by the winds and waters of life? Maybe you're tossed in a spiritual sea that is more violent than Galilee in the peak of storm season. My friends, Jesus is the one who treads upon the sea. Every wind and every wave obeys his command. He is the one who calms raging seas. And if he can calm a raging Galilee, he can calm your raging heart right now. Are you carrying wounds that seem to never heal? Do you feel the sickness of sin creeping into your mind and heart? Do, you, do your sinful passions... Plague your family like a deadly virus. Maybe you're carrying the wounds of 
hurt and loss and pain and fear and all these other things. My friends, good news, Jesus is the one whose wings bring healing. Only he can satisfy a famished world. Only he is stronger than the storms of life. Only he can heal his sin-sick creation. And because God has taken on flesh, we can come to him. He has borne the punishment of every sin. He has taken the consequence of the fall. He died and rose again. And now you can be full. You can be at rest. I just, just don't know when was the last time you took time in 2020 just to close your eyes and stop and evaluate. Had you come to the feast maker? Had you come to the wave master? Had you come to the healer? Or how often have you tried to figure it out on your own? How often have you hoped that it'll just get better on its own? And yet it just seems to get worse and worse and worse. My friends, it won't get better under man. And it won't get better on its own. But you can come to the one who owns all things and find healing in him. I just want to offer you to come and pray with our elders. You may be someone who knows Jesus and just wants to pray just because you feel the weight of that hunger. You've been splashed by the stormy waters. You may not know Jesus, and I want to invite you to pray, even right there in your home. I want you to just fathom what could happen in finding rest and satisfaction and fullness in Jesus. We want you to know Jesus, and so we want you to feel the freedom to come and talk to us, pray with us, and find rest in him. If you're watching online, you can find our information on our website. Call us. We'd be happy to explain the gospel personally with you to answer your questions. For those of you who want to pray, elders will be in the back. But let's just pray right now. Father God, 2020 has been a desert. It has been a sickness. It has been a storm. And yet, we trust in you as the feast maker, the wave master, and the healer. Lord, help us to trust in Jesus even more today. Help us, Father, to stop trying to figure out our own famine. Help us to stop expecting politicians and presidents and senators and representatives to be able to heal something that only you can heal. Help us, Father, to stop trying to walk on water on our own and start keeping our eyes on Jesus as we walk. Help us, Father, to be refreshed as Jesus spreads his garment over us and we find healing in his wings. We pray this in your son's name.